Hello, and God bless you. This is Pastor Jeremy, and what a delight to be with you on this Friday, October the 2nd of 2020. As always, we welcome all our listeners uh, to this podcast as we get ready to go into the weekend. We thank you, and I believe that if you have been with us this whole week, you have sensed uh, how the Lord has been speaking to us, uh, the way I can describe it in a very intimate way, as uh, I think it's been really a, a week of, of self-examination, uh, of self-analyzation of our lives. And so we are, as we're getting ready to go into the weekend, uh, there's much to ponder on, much to much reason to draw closer to God, even in this hour. And uh, we, as we get into the weekend, we pray that, uh, um, that, that you will prepare and continue to be alert, continue to be awake as we see all the things that are taking place in the world around us. We want to give all the time that we can to the Word of God today. And uh, today in our panel, we have Brother Marty and Brother Fernando joining us. And uh, as always, never get tired of saying it, it is always an honor and a privilege to be able to study the Word of God together. So, Brother Marty, we'll leave it to you to share what God has placed in your heart as we study the Word of God together. Amen. We've been looking at some very, very deep things this week. Uh, we've been talking about, as you well know, the four abominations that were revealed to the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 8 of the book of Ezekiel. We've been pointing out how it was, uh, you know, it's interesting to to consider why uh, the Lord revealed these things to the prophet, uh, as opposed to, say, Jeremiah, who was in Jerusalem at the time when the ultimate destruction came. Um, what he revealed to Ezekiel was unique to Ezekiel, although there are components of much of what he saw in his writings uh, in all the prophets. It's the same spirit. But how God reveals his word and to whom he reveals his word um, is very interesting. You know, uh, because it's as if he 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 takes the the quality of the personality which he created, and then reveals the prophetic word to that particular individual. But it's the same spirit. And when you begin to put the pieces together, you begin to see a fuller picture emerge. In Ezekiel's case, he was a prophet of the captivity. And as we talked about when we begin uh, chapter eight, he identifies the the time period in which this particular vision came to him as being the sixth year of the sixth month of the fifth day. And we talked about the sixth year representing the amount of time they had actually been in captivity in Babylon. And so by that, we know that these visions that we've been exploring these weeks uh, are, are, are only about a four and a half uh, months, I mean, four years and six months or so away from the ultimate destruction. So there was really, in essence, four and a half years remaining before the entirety of, uh, of the nation uh, of Judah, the, the temple, in, <clears throat> the temple of, of Solomon and Jerusalem itself would be destroyed. And, uh, and, and, and the rise of Nebuchadnezzar and his power and the Babylonian empire would be solidified as as the as the global empire of the day, a foreshadow as we've been talking of of that which is fully blossomed and revealed in the book of Revelation, 
chapter 13 of, of that global system that will enslave the entirety of humanity for a season and in, in its full power will be realized for about three and a half years or 42 months as the Bible describes it with uh, one that we call the Antichrist. The Bible identifies him as the son of perdition who will head up this global government and will be assisted by a religious component, uh, Revelation 13, 11, which speaks of the lamb that rises up out of the earth having two horns like a lamb, it says, but he speaks like a dragon and he exercises all the power of the beast, first beast before him. So there's a coming together of, of the political, uh, the religious and the military power of the globe and it will all be transferred united so under one particular individual and that's what we see happening here in the rise of babylon in this story understand as we go forth today that these things are prophetic foreshadows although they're true in the historical narrative the depth by which we need to understand them uh it, it can only be done by the by the holy spirit and we need to understand these things from the perspective of the overall unfolding revelation of the scriptures themselves which tell us about the things that are coming, which speak of the last days and also of the end times. The prophets called them the latter days. But Daniel had it revealed to him that there was a specific time period that went beyond the last days, and he called it uh, the end of times or the end of or the end times. So that is what we've been exploring, and we've already gone through the first and the second. Um, visions that he had. <clears throat> One, it began with the, the seed of the image, which is called the seed of the image of jealousy, um, and, and it was particularly placed at the entrance of the north as you go into the temple of God proper, or the, or, you know, where, where the holy temple was. And then it, it gave way to the second vision, which is by the gate northward where the altar was, the brazen altar, the place of sacrifice and and atonement uh, for the people. And there was a particular image, Inanna or uh, Aphrodite, Venus, whatever you want to call her, her name's the same throughout uh, the pagan legends, Simiramis, whatever you want to call her, that's what she is, placed there by the priesthood right at the door uh, uh, where, where the altar was. And that was the second vision that he was allowed to see. Now, this brings us today to the third and the fourth visions that we're going to cover. Uh, which will ultimately seal the fate of the nation. And that's what Ezekiel is seeing. And what God is basically telling him, like we read in chapter 8, verse 6 yesterday, is that these were the catalysts. These were the uh, the actions of the nation as a whole and its priestly and ruling class that God, as God put it, would cause him to go far off from his sanctuary. Ultimately, as we get into the remainder of, of the story, should the Lord allow us to go there in the coming days, we know that God removes his presence, his glory, ultimately going to the Mount of Olives and departing into heaven. So that is where we are today. We come to the, the third and the fourth thing that God showed Ezekiel. And uh, I'm going to have Brother Jeremy begin reading uh, in verse 13 of chapter 8. And I would like you, Brother, to read, if you could, all the way through verse 16. So verse 13 through 16, we'll begin our study. We hope you have your Bibles. And we pray that you'll be blessed this day. We ask the Lord's blessing in Jesus' name. Brother Jeremy, could you read that for us, please? Amen. He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, 
which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court, in inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their back towards the temple of the Lord, and their faces towards the east. And they worshiped the sun towards the east. Wow. <clears throat> so with the women, <laughs> it says that uh, they were weeping for Tammuz. And with the men, uh, they had turned their back on the Lord's house or the door of the temple of the Lord and were facing toward the east, worshiping the sun. And so that is going to be our study today. We're going to look at, at, at vision three and four. Uh, because they're they really are connected. Uh, they're 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 the blossoming, the 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 fruit of of generations and centuries and culminations of centuries of 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 turning away from God. But we we have to look at these things in order to fully appreciate and understand what are we talking about here. You know the history of it. Again. What we are dealing with is a nation that is not like the Gentile nations of the world. These are a people who have known God and their leadership, their ruling religious establishment, and the royal house of Israel, of Judah. Um, they, they were the caretakers of the oracles of the creator, of the father in heaven, of people born by the express will of God. Uh, because of promises that had been given to Abraham and the covenants that Abraham had cut with the Lord and the revelation that was given to Abraham in Genesis that he would have a people that would grow to be as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of the heaven, but that, you know, there was, there was the cutting of the covenant with Abraham when it was revealed to him, where he reveals in Genesis that uh, when he cut this covenant, uh, and laid the pieces of the animals which he offered to God out. Uh, and, and he had to fight the birds off of this sacrifice, which is, you know, we can't get into all that today, but it's very, very incredibly deep. He said that, that behold, a, a great darkness fell upon him. And, and that's when he's also describing that he saw the Lord coming uh, like a smoking lamp a burning fire and that it passed between the pieces of 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 the blood and the animals that were divided and and then God revealed to him uh the promises that he would give to him but also revealed that his his seed which would go through Isaac and Jacob uh would grow into a great nation but that they would be subjugated in and brought into Egypt they would come down into Egypt and there they would be held captive uh, for some almost 430 years. And at the precise time that, that the 430 years was drawing to a close, God moved on his servant Moses, the man of God, as the Bible describes him, revealing himself to Moses at the burning bush in Sinai at the foot of the mountain. And there uh, he would reveal to him that his name, calling himself I Am three times, really in essence revealing the Trinity or the triune nature of the Godhead itself, 
and then commission Moses to go and, and, and rescue the people and to demand of Pharaoh that he let his people go. And so we know the story of the Exodus and God brings them out and brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai where God came down with the hosts of heaven and, and set on the mountain. And the Bible says the mountain was set on fire and that Moses in his great discourse to the people before he would leave the scene and, and, uh, and, and, and pass away and, and, and give the leadership to Joshua. Uh, he told the people, he said, no people on the face of the earth has ever heard the voice of God or seen it. And he says, you have, <laughs> you heard him and you've seen him when he came down on Sinai. So that's what made them unique amongst all the nations of the world. And, and God had selected them for his own people. He gave the rest of the world uh, to the Gentile nations. But to them, he gave the oracles of God, beginning with the Torah, which was written by Moses at the commandment of God. And the people of Israel would indeed come into the promised land where they would be met with seven most uh, of the most paganistic, heathenistic peoples the world has ever seen, fully and totally controlled by demonic power. And, and by the hand of God, they would, they would begin to, to reclaim the territory that had been promised to Father Abraham. So they were unique in who they were and to this day remain that way. They, for those who don't think that Israel yet has a covenant with God, they're, they're mistaken because the father cut a covenant with, with natural Israel and married himself to them. And they belonged to him. And he promised as a result of their sin, they would be scattered to the four corners of the world. But just prior to the, to the culmination of all things, he said he would regather them and plant them in their land again, which we have witnessed that prophecy being fulfilled in our time, 1948, May the 12th. The Jewish people, against all odds, were regathered and placed into their into their nation, and and so we see prophecy and its clock uh, begin to tick from that time forward. But as we get into this, we'll begin to see that we need to understand it from that perspective that the events that would transpire that would lead to their ultimate destruction were events that have their seeds um, planted uh, in the rebellion of the nation itself and and the and the things that they did were connected to to many things that are are mysterious and yet in the nature of how they're you know how they're acted out in the material world if you will specifically in this case in the house of god we are literally seeing a, a an unfolding of of ancient and eternal mystery at such a deep level that that it's very difficult to un understand for those that aren't used to uh, to digging uh, deep into the Word of God. But it has to be understood from that perspective in order to understand the the serious nature of how God interacts with humanity and what is actually taking place on a much larger scale, a scale that involves the eternal realm itself, the unseen world. And, and creatures and beings uh, that are both uh, holy and evil and, and that truly exist. Personalities and powers. And we call them demons and devils or, or angels of light. You know, I mean, they're, they're, there's a whole class of created beings that the Bible reveals to us that have been here 
because we have no other way to describe it uh, for billions and billions and billions of years, trillions of years, quite possibly. These things that we are engaged in now in our time have their have their uh, their ultimate uh, you know uh, connection to to an ongoing unfolding uh, drama uh, that's been raging uh, for eternity. And so when we come into this level of of of, of blasphemous behavior. It's it's more than just the sins of the flesh that we're looking at here. It's much more than that. It's much more than just ah, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of backslidden. <laughs> there are there are powers at work here that are ancient and and found their energy level. Understand what I'm telling you right now? The energy level of what they were engaged in um, is is amplified in their lives, that is the people of God, because they were the people of God. It was necessary to bring this level of corruption into their lives, and they had to allow it to where it ultimately overtook the very essence of their being, their soul, their spirit, their bodies, became vehicles by which demonic and satanic force and will could be brought forth and expressed into the material world for the purposes of dominating and ruling not just the planet, but ultimately the deceived and deluded thought processes of Satan himself, the universe as a whole. In his demented thinking, he, he presumes that by breaking uh, the sanctity of the house of God in some way, he could dissuade uh, the forces that are moving to bring about the prophetic word uttered by the holy prophets of God and cause it to fail. And in so doing, in his demented thinking, he then is attempting and has continued since these days to attempt up until our time to break the word of God. Because in so doing, he would then break the infallibility and perfection of the Godhead itself and throw the remaining balance of all things that are into ultimate destruction and chaos, wherein he rules supreme, so he thinks. So this is what <laughs> so this is what we see happening here, man. This is some heavy stuff we're talking about. So uh and we need to understand it from that perspective. So but Jeremy began uh by by reading to us 13 through 16, and that's what we're going to cover. We're entering now into the third and fourth abominations, and the final two, uh, before the gavel strikes down and says it, it is it is it is accomplished, which which you know brings us into chapter nine. But let's take a look here at what's actually happening, uh, brother Jeremy. Could you read verse 13 and 14 to us again, please? Yes, he said also unto me. Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Incredible. All right. So one of the things we need to understand right out the get-go is remember this these prophetic writings of Ezekiel they begin in Ezekiel chapter one with the appearance of the Lord's chariot out of the north 
Could you read that to us, Brother Jeremy, in, in, in Ezekiel 1-4, what Ezekiel actually saw? Yes. <clears throat> it says, He, and I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud, and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof, as the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. So this is what this is what sets the tone for the entire book of Ezekiel. Remember again, we're about midway point or beyond actually of the final eleven years. So this is the fifth year of that final eleven years of the history of Judah, the temple and Jerusalem and the nation as a whole. And it's into this climate that suddenly God appears and how Ezekiel sees him is coming out of the north. And, and and what's actually happening, if we think about it, you know, this is the very throne of the Lord itself that he sees coming out of the north, traveling to the planet Earth. <laughs> wow. uh, this, is, yeah, this is incredible, right? So if we understand it from that perspective, what he actually just said there, right? I mean, this is this is heaven coming to the earth. This is. This is everything that is, because wherever God is, everything is. You know, he's in control of everything. There's nothing that doesn't travel with him. So, in essence, what we're being told here is God himself, the Lord himself, found it absolutely vital that he make an appearance. And not just an appearance in the form of, let's say, the three angels that appeared to Abraham in the plains of memory just before the destruction of Sodom. No, we're talking about the entirety of the throne room of heaven itself, its dimension and all the qualities of it penetrating the material world and coming into the dimension uh, that, that Ezekiel, to the extent that Ezekiel is able to see it and record it. So when you read it from chapter 1, verse 4 through 28, you have a description of an incredible vision, technology of God, if you will, for lack of a better word. Uh, this is the vehicle by which he travels. These are the hosts of heaven coming with him, created beings of such a high order that they minister to the creator himself, our father. And, and, and it sets the tone for what's about to follow. And we're meant to understand it from that perspective so that when we get into these visions that you just read about, and when you begin to see what is being revealed to the prophet, it's with that in mind. It, reveal, it reveals the intensity of what's really happening. Not just the obvious that's happening that can be discerned with the naked eye by anybody, but the sense of the intensity of what's happening in the real, in the land of the real. We we call it the spirit realm, but but that relegates it in the minds of most people to just, you know, these ethereal, you know, manifestations of the mysterious, like ghosts and stuff, you know. That's no no no. We're talking about the real, the real world. And 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 that's that's the perspective we need to have the understanding of it from it reveals the intensity of what's really happening it reveals the the battle 
Mm. There's a battle taking place here. Or he wouldn't come like that. Do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> he would yeah. not show up like that. It's God himself. It's not a dispatched archangel Michael or Gabriel. This is God coming. And he hasn't been seen like this since the days that he met with the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Right? That was the last time he showed up like that. And, and, and here we have it centuries later. He comes back again. And so there are some intense things happening. What's really happening is a battle is being revealed. And an ancient, and now in my opinion, uh, coming once again, uh, it, it, I believe it's it's being fulfilled again. I think it's blossoming again. I think the times of the end are upon us and that that what we're going to see this time and what's coming oh man i feel i feel it <laughs> what's mm. coming again with this kind of display is going to be the son of the living god jesus christ the king of kings and the lord of lords yes yes now listen it says that he brings him can you read verse 14 again to us by jeremy Yes, uh, verse 14 of 8. Yes. Oh, okay. It says, uh, <clears throat> Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was towards the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. All right. So there's a lot of things that we see here. There's the gate of the Lord's house. So this is uh, this is a, a an outer court where the women are. Uh, but again, look at what it says, where the gate is. It's this gate that, you know, the women weren't allowed to go past a certain point, And even the regular guys or men of the, of the nation could could only go to a certain point. The rest was reserved for the for the priestly class, sons of Aaron and sons of, uh, uh, and the sons of Levi uh, through Koas and, and the others. Uh, they were the only ones who could go into the more inner inner parts of the of the sanctuary where the porch and the altar and the temple of the Lord is. So the women are out there, but what we need to understand is that, again, what is mentioned here, it's the gate of the Lord's house, which is toward the north. We must, you know, we, we need to take note how many times he mentions the north, right? He mentions the north in, in verse 3 where the where the the north where the seat of the image of jealousy was he mentions the north in verse 5 when he talks about uh, the way of the north toward the north northward at the gate of the altar there's another mention of north and this time in connection with the altar and then in verse 14 which we just read north at the gate that goes into the lord's house so he's trying to get our attention here he's trying to make us understand something and the significance of the north and he mentions north uh, five times within the first 14 verses. And because it's there at those northern lo locations that each and every one of these spiritual manifestations in the natural world, uh, represented by a seat of jealousy, an image of jealousy, and then here we have Tammuz, uh, and then followed by the, the, the 20, about 25 uh, men, he says, that are bowing their face toward the east um, we have the north mentioned because the north you know the north is where the lord dwells 
That's why when you just read in Ezekiel 1, 4, Brother Jeremy, you, he sees God coming from the north. That is where he dwells. He dwells in the north, wherever that is and how far away that is. <laughs> I don't know if, if you want to talk about space and distance, but we do know uh, that it's above the heights of the clouds, right? And, right. and that it's it, it, it's in the north. Can you read that to us, Brother Jeremy, in Isaiah 14? Because that's where he, uh, the Lord is identified as being. In Isaiah 14, uh, I think it's uh, verse 12 and 13 we could read there. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the, congre of the congregation in the sides of the north. Of the north. And so there the, the prophet Isaiah gives us some incredible insight. He's speaking of Lucifer himself before his fall and what led to his fall. But there in verse 13, it, he talks about ascending into heaven, which is on the sides of the north. So this is the perspective we have to understand what's transpiring in these visions. The origin of these things are portraying something uh, that have their origins in, in the councils of heaven itself. And so with each blasphemous thing that is being revealed to the prophet, notice where the blasphemy is. It's, it's located in the northern sections of the temple, whether it's the north gate that leads to the brazen altar, whether it's the, the gate that leads to the, <laughs> into the place where the altar is in the north, where the seat of the image of jealousy is, or now further out, but still extending northward, is, is, the, is the image of Tammuz, where the women are. So we see something here that's being revealed and why the intensity of what's about to transpire and come down on the nation is necessary. Because the very house of God itself, which is the miniature replica of the true house in heaven, is being affected by satanic principle. And it's, it's filled the house. And it's really retelling a story. But we'll get into that in a second. So the north is where the Lord dwells. And in essence, what they are saying and what they are doing uh, is rejecting and defying heaven. That's, that's what... <laughs> That's why he mentions the north so many times, because he wants us to understand. That's what he was showing Ezekiel. I want you to understand that the level of this rebellion, I've seen it before. <laughs> and, and, and that's why I've come down personally with the entirety of heaven to remove my glory. That's incredible. To remove that part, the Shekinah, what I left here as a protective covering for my people which no one could come and destroy my nation as long as my glory abides here. And so important is the, oh man, I tell you what, so important is the glory of God that it necess necessitated the entirety of heaven coming to retrieve it. Almost as if it was saying to safeguard it, to protect yeah. it. Do you hear what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, it's intense. Because when he shows up, it's right when when they are in the last and final stages of the ultimate act of blasphemy, that is the 25 men that we'll get to in a second here, whose faces are toward the east and they're worshiping the sun. It says that in verse 16, 
that they're in the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, they're right at the door of the temple of the Lord. So this progressive blasphemous and and destructive and rebellious behavior is satanic in origin, and it's come to the point where they are right at the door of the temple of the Lord's house. Whenever you see the word the temple of the Lord, it's not referring to the ultimate structure that's built around it. It's talking about the inner sanctuary of the house of God or, or the tabernacle or the temple structure and compound. When it says the temple of the Lord, it's talking about the holy place itself and the holy of holies. And the holy of holies is where the Shekinah glory dwelt. That's where the high priest would go in once a month, I mean, once a year, and he would offer a drop of blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. And the Shekinah would appear, not that it had ever left, but the Bible says, if you've read in other places, that the Lord surrounds himself with darkness, right? Have you ever read that? He's surrounded with darkness. <laughs> he he like, clothes himself in the clouds because of the brightness of who he is. Well, that is symbolic of the Holy of Holies. That's what the, the Holy of Holies symbolized. Because there was no artificial light in there, if you remember. The only thing that would produce the light was the single drop of blood on the mercy seat, which was a foreshadow of Calvary and the shedding of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they would uh, drop that, that blood on the mercy seat, the, it is said that the entirety of the Holy of Holies would then be illuminated with the Shekinah glory of God, the very substance that brought all material creation into being. And so when you see them coming to that place, which we'll get to in a second, where their backs are turned toward that, they have literally reached the very edges of what is symbolic of heaven itself. And and so why God comes himself with all his cherubim and seraphim and, and the armies of heaven to retrieve what? The glory of God from the Holy of Holies, to take it from there. The implications of this are astounding because we're, it's almost as if what we are seeing is an attempt by Satan himself working out his demonic will through those who have the oracles of God, not the pagan nation, but those that were selected to be God's priests and elders within his very house. and. And the mm -hmm. fact that their rebellion and blasphemy has reached to the very temple of the Lord, where the holy place and the holy of holies is, and in the interior of the holy of holies is where the Shekinah has been there. The Shekinah glory has been there since the days that Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, where that glory came in such a profound way as to cause uh, the smoke of God, the incense of God, the fragrance of God to fill the house with such an extent that it says the priest couldn't even stand up to minister. So weighty was the glory. And it retrieved itself, or, or, or yeah, it, 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 uh, it withdrew itself into the very Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. So the implications are astounding because this is, seems to be an attempt by the satanic force itself, the intelligence, uh, 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 the dark intelligence of Lucifer himself, to somehow, some way, through this egregious, blasphemous, uh, systematic infiltration of the holy temple of God, to, he was after, what he was after was that, that glory of God. He was after the Shekinah glory of God. I don't think you understand what I'm saying. 
<laughs> I hope you do. <laughs> because it's intense. It is why the entirety of heaven has to come and retrieve it. It is why the angels took residence round about the temple and protected it. And as we go on in chapter 9 and 10 and 11, what you're going to see is that they, they systematically cleared the way for the glory of God to be retrieved. This essence, this, this, the substance allowed to be detached in a way, because how do you describe such things? And, and deposited in the Holy of Holies and left there for centuries. It was so powerful that it required the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and all the armies of heaven to come and take it back because the devil was after it. <laughs> all right. Moving right along. So in essence, they were rejecting and defying heaven. This is satanic, and this is far deeper than the mere sins of the flesh and, and the mere apostasy. See, we see the same thing is going to be played out. What the devil is after in the fallen, backslidden church is the Holy Spirit inside the hearts of the people that claim to be his. And it is why we are told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that he cannot manifest, and what he's after is to take residence within the temple of God. That cannot happen because it says that there is a restraining force within the hearts of the children of God. And it requires a blasphemous act of, of literally taking him out of the way in order for what to happen uh, uh, to occur. And the desire of the devil is to fill the temple with his own presence. And, and in this case, in the coming days ahead, it's going to be his own representative his own son, his own son. Now listen, that is what we begin to see is actually happening here. An attempt of this was happening in these women, these women of God who had given themselves over to the spirit of Satan. It says that they sat there weeping for Tammuz, now the Bible takes great pains here. That is the Lord, His Spirit, and He has He has Ezekiel name uh, this God that they're worshiping, Tammuz, uh, and gave him his ancient name because he was known by many cultures and 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 many different names from the from the time of his original naming. Uh, you know, to the Greeks, he, he, he was called Adonis. Uh, the Babylonians called him Tammuz, but the Egyptians called him Osiris. It's the same God. And, 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 and this is very interesting and in why we need to look into this. What was actually happening here? Listen, uh, the worship of Tammuz is the most ancient of, of pagan idolatry. Um, uh, in, in one of the old books, I don't even know if you can get it. It's very hard to get. It's it's out of print, and there's there's places that that you would have to dig to find. Like I was able to do, uh, they've reprinted it recently. But the older writings and manuscripts of of uh, of, a, of a man by the name of Alexander Hislop, 
uh, he wrote a book uh, called The Two Babylons. And and in that book, he revealed uh, what archaeology has revealed um, about the ancient pagan belief of, of Tammuz. According to the legend now, and, and, and according to what would transpire throughout all the cultures of the world and manifest in different names, um, but the original name was Tammuz. So it's very interesting that God, uh, as the Lord's revealed it to me, you know, at least made me think about it uh, and to us, uh, that he would use Tammuz. Now, listen, uh, the story goes that, that, that Nimrod, if you remember Nimrod, uh, who was the originator of the Tower of Babel and who was seeking to open a portal uh, by, by the building and erecting of this tower. Uh, to allow uh, the, the the ancient spirits access back into the material world, it was his it was his thought that he could do that, uh, and 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 he he had thought to do this based on uh, the stories that had come across the other side of the flood. They immediately the devil moved and tried to reactivate, even then on the other side of Noah's flood, tried to reactivate the very thing that brought the world into destruction before, which you can read in Genesis chapter 6. Now, uh, according to archaeology and according to ancient manuscripts and all that kind of stuff, Nimrod's mother, uh, her name was Semiramis. That's her original ancient name. And she, by the way, is the originator of uh, goddess worship. They say polytheism, the the worship of all gods, um, and 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 subsequently, if you think about it, all the different gods that were in Egypt, right? I mean, that Egypt was the oldest known culture that we have in the in the Bible, as far as a, as a, as a world empire. And if you think about it, um, it, 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 in that sense, as a global empire, it was closest to, um, I think, you know. Uh, the times or the centuries that led up to to their forming and, and, and birthing. They worshipped those gods, although when they came down into the Egyptian territory through the pharaohs and the, the priests and so forth and so on, the, the names had changed. But the original name uh, of this of this god was Tammuz, and that's why God, I think, had e Ezekiel use that language. He could have called him Osiris. He could have called him, you know, several other things. But he called him Tammuz because his story goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. And as the story goes, um, she's also the Semiramis woman. She was uh, she was the mother of Nimrod. And there are many legends that call her uh, the mother of harlots. She's she's also known uh, to us as Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. And and in many ways. Uh, and we'll get into this in a second. She is the spirit of Eve manifested on the other side of the flood. It was said, listen to this, that Semiramis had an incestuous relationship with Nimrod, his mother and him. Uh, they committed incest. And the the uh, product of this incestuous relationship, uh, a child was born. And, and the child that was born uh, was named, they named him Tammuz. Now, uh, like I said, Tammuz uh, was the name familiar to the Babylonians. It was the name familiar to, to those cultures of the day. 
but he was also known as Osiris. And and Osiris's mother was named uh, Isis, you know, so they changed names, but it's the same spirit. And and through the ages, some of his names uh, throughout pagan culture came to be known as this. Listen to this. And these are from different sources. This isn't from Alexander Hislop, but if you actually dig into this, you'll see. Also, uh, Brother Marty, she, yeah. uh, she proclaimed Semiramis that Tammuz was Nimrod reincarnated. Yes. Well, let's get to that in a second. Now listen to this. Because that's connected to why these women are weeping. Now listen to this. Uh, he was also called, listen to this, he was called, he was known as Tammuz of the Abyss. Because what happened was Tammuz died. He was slain. And we'll get into that in a yeah. second. But listen, listen to this. He died and he was known as Tammuz of the Abyss. He was known as the God of the Deep. He was known as the world or, or the destroyer of worlds as he made his, these legends made their way into the, uh, the, the, the Hindu culture, right, of India. He's known as Shiva to the Indians, the destroyer of worlds. Again, like I said, to the Babylonians, he was Tammuz. He evolved and, and was called Adonis by the Greeks, uh, which means Lord. Uh, the, 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 the word Adon in, in the Greek means Lord. So he was known as Lord to the Egyptians, like I said, Osiris. Uh, and he's also known as the judge of all those who have died, because that's where he went. So this worship of Tammuz has its origins in the pagan legends. Again, like anything where there's, where there's smoke, there was fire. And, and the masterful job that Satan has done through the ages is destroyed distort these truths causing them to become legends and myths right these are the myths of the greek the legends of the romans and the ancient cultures of the world but understand there's a kernel of of truth hidden beneath all the the evolutions of of the of the retelling of the story and they are centered and anchored in what the bible itself reveals happened because what's actually being concealed in these legends is is the story of the desire and what will be the ultimate expression of of satanic rebellion in the earth which will be allowed by god but in these stories it's interesting what we find here because it's wrapped up in what these women are doing they're doing it with the full knowledge of what they're doing now listen it's a foreshadow of the antichrist that's yet to come and i'll explain that to you in a minute just like what brother fernando was just pointing out He's exactly right. It's a foreshadow in its celebration. And in, real, in, in, in many ways, if you can see it at deeper levels, and I know we're talking in a much more advanced way here, but I, I know you who have been with us, or, uh, you see it right away. It, re, it represents, in the spirit world, the rejection uh, of Calvary. And, and we'll talk about that in a second. Now, what, what, did, what, what is told to us actually happened to Tammuz in the legends of the heathen nations is that he died by a tree. It says of him in, in their legends that Tammuz, remember, they're worshiping this thing. Uh, it, it is said that his spirit pervades the entirety of the natural world. 
the natural order of things. The material world is animated by his spirit. It is said that he, when he died, that, that he hid himself <laughs> or he hides himself in a tree. And it made me think of the, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because that's where the devil first manifested himself. And, and listen to this. The Egyptians who called him Osiris say that, that he hid himself in the apis bull since his spirit animates nature. They would say that he would hide himself in the apis bull. And, and when you think about it, if that's the case, that is why the worship of the golden calf, remember, is so egregious. Because they knew what they were doing because what they built, what Aaron built for them was a golden calf, which was the apis bull. They worshipped the apis bull, but it wasn't just because it was a bull. The reason that the Egyptians worshipped him was because they believed that Osiris was on the inside of the, the apis bull, his spirit. And so when the children of Israel built that apis bull out of gold at the very foot of Mount Sinai, while Moses is on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, uh, in essence, you are seeing a small picture of a, of a larger truth that's about to be worked out in our time. You see, if the spirit of Osiris, which is really the spirit of the devil, uh, uh, abiding in the apis bull uh, is, is, is symbolic for us, and Moses is on the mountain, it is telling the story of what was going to happen. In essence, Jesus would go away into the mountain of heaven, and what we're told in the book of Revelation is that the people are, are going to get tired of waiting for him like the children of Israel did. And they're going to say, like they said about Moses, as for this man Moses, we don't even know what's happened to him. He's been gone for so long. So then you have an Aaron, which is the high priest of the children of Israel, making an image that supposedly contains the spirit of Tammuz on the inside of him, Osiris to the Egyptians, a type of the Antichrist spirit inhabiting this thing, and they rise up to play. So you have a false prophet, uh, Aaron wasn't, but he, he took the role of that, of the false prophet, makes an image uh, to, to Osiris, the Apis bull, and they all worship it. And then Moses comes down from the mountain. It's telling the story. It's prophesying what was coming. So the Egyptian who, was, who called him Osiris, they say that he hides himself in the Apis bull. He is Antichrist. He is the son of the devil. It's a foreshadow of it. And they didn't realize what they were doing, at least in the time of Ezekiel, these women. But the legends were pagan in nature, and they had given themselves to to the stories of the legend, but there was a truth running through it. It's a spirit, remember. It's a spirit. You have to ask yourself, what is up with all this idolatry that takes place in the Bible? Are we stupid? Are people just stupid? Well, yes, but, but why are they moved to make images? Why were they moved to make statues and you know, uh, pictures of birds and creeping things and fish in the sea and whatever you want to call it, Dagon, right? Fish in the half man, half fish, all that stuff. Why were they doing those things? What is this attempt by satanic force to move upon people? It's almost, uh, and to move through people and, and the result of them in, uh, influencing the minds and the souls of men, uh, what the men go do is make images to these influences that are 
plaguing their very soul and eventually overtaking them. And what is that? It has been the constant attempt since the beginning of creation, on the other side of the flood especially, when all idolatry broke out across the planet, it is an attempt by demonic power to take form. They have attempted it and attempted it and attempted it, but they can't. That's why God would mock them by the prophet Isaiah and tell them, you know, the, the, these idols which neither see nor hear, they have eyes but they can't see, they have ears but they can't hear, right? They, they, they can't, they're, they're just inanimate objects. He was mocking them. They can't take form. But they move men to make these things because there's a there's a there's a component of the metaphysical, for lack of a better word. There's a component of the energy of the satanic involved in it. The very act of bringing something into being in the physical world has its origin in the world that you cannot see. When it takes shape and form, it becomes a contact point where the rebellion itself creates the frenetic energy that allows the will of that demonic power to manifest itself through the rebellious pagan nations yes but when it's done in compliance with a heart that knows god and knows his word it creates havoc like you can't imagine in the spirit realm and unleashes the expression of darkness in the material world and this is why we see in our time the world going crazy right now. We talked about this in this country, uh, what happened at the election of, of Donald Trump. What happened? I, I, I'm not talking politics with you. I don't support anybody but Jesus, trust me. I don't want anybody but Jesus. I only have one king. He's, there's only one Lord. There's only one rightful heir to this planet. And that's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. So that's not what I'm talking to you about. What I am talking to you about is what we pointed out back in March when we began these podcasts. We, I was there Inauguration Day, and I saw what happened the next day when over 500,000 women wearing on their head pink hats symbolizing fertility marched through the streets of Washington. They came to the Washington Monument, and there were people like Madonna and a bunch of other freakazoids there. Agents of the devil in our time, by the way, uh, and, and witches were present. The, 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 the goddess worship, the whole feminist ideology, on and on and on. And from that day forward, not only in the United States, but internationally, every single full moon that has occurred since then, witches and, and goddess worshipers and all that stuff all over the world gather together every full moon and perform satanic rites and, and, and Wiccan rites and flat-out occult ritual for the express purpose of removing the president of the United States, but more than that, of, of fundamentally uh, removing the influence of, of the United States itself uh, as a world player. And, and this is what they've been doing, calling upon demonic spirits to come. Now, this has been ongoing for almost four years now. And it has, ladies and gentlemen, it has opened up the violence, the, the, the perversion, 
the 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 wars, the 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 destabilization of nature itself, it manifested in the tsunamis and earthquakes and volcanoes and just go on and on. If you go back, just look over the last four years, and you take a look at every aspect of 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 what is common to us on this planet, from the things in nature, the unleashing of locusts, the destabilizations of governments, the rise of plagues. I mean, just go down the list. I guarantee you, you'll be able to directly tie it to this unified occult practice that has its origination in the the feminist movement and in many other movements like it and the rise of Gaia and, and the goddess worship, all that. It is the spirit of Eve. It is the spirit of Semiramis. It is an ancient spirit and it's come to rest in our time. And what they were doing back in Ezekiel's day by weeping, it's pretty incredible because what what they were doing was replaying an ancient pagan ritual, and they were giving force to it in the house of God. It is said that when Tammuz died, uh, that he went he went into the bosom of the earth. Now, remember this, just to fast forward in our thinking, it, we are told that that the antichrist doesn't become the antichrist until he's inhabited by by an ancient spirit and in revelation chapter 9 verse 4 and revelation chapter 9 verse 11 what we are told happens is that there's an angel that falls from heaven which i believe is lucifer himself he's allowed to have the key to the bottomless pit he opens up the pit and out from the pit comes one known as abaddon or Apollyon to the Greeks, and and that spirit comes up out of the bottomless pit, and it goes into the son of perdition and inhabits his body. That is the reality of what's going to happen not too many days from now. And it's very interesting because it has its origins way back in the time of Nimrod, Simiramis, and, and what would he ultimately evolve into the ancient polytheistic practices of the pagans and the heathens of the world up until our time. It speaks of Apollyon rising in Revelation 9, 4, and 11 and inhabiting this this foreshadow of the Antichrist. Now, what's interesting to me as well is that the women, it says, are weeping for him. They're weeping for him uh, to be reborn. See? (laughs) Now, listen. The weeping of the women in the house of God was so blasphemous based on everything we've been talking about this morning so far, precisely because of the spirit that they were invoking. It's the spirit of the devil's son. It's Tammuz. And it's said by the pagans, like we were talking about earlier, that he died. Listen to this. (laughs) That Tammuz died in the springtime and that he died by a tree. See, this is powerful because this is Calvary. Because it was Calvary where the Lord Jesus, who was hung on a tree, it was there that he destroyed the devil. The devil died by a tree. And the ancient legend says Tammuz died by a tree. In the springtime, Jesus was crucified in the springtime. 
something so profound is taking place here. Remember the lamb was slain by the foundation of the world, and we're talking about spiritual activity here being worked out through the lives of humanity and manifested in the realms of the theater of the material realm, witnessed and observed by angels. Now, why do they weep? Why were they weeping? Uh, what, what, what it is said that the pagan ritual was, which they were involved in, is they weep because Tammuz has gone down into the bottomless pit and has become the lord of the pit. His spirit has. And so their tears uh, happen twice a year, once in the spring and once at the end of the summer harvest during the summer when it's most dry and dead. The reason that the women wept was because their te their tears were meant to be symbolic. And what the tears were uh, is and why they'd worked themselves up into this frenzy to cry for him was they would shed tears because it symbolized water. And, and the water would fall to the earth as their tears were and in hopes that the water would seep into the depths of Hades itself where Tammuz is and that the water that would flow from them would touch him and that he would spring forth from the earth and would be allowed to rule again. <laughs> now listen, uh, what the women were actually doing in the spirit world was calling for the spirit of Antichrist. They were calling for the son of the devil to make his appearance. Now, they didn't understand all this. Of course not. But remember, uh, they knew they were doing bad. I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm not alleviating them of what they were doing. What I am telling you, though, is that they were fully being controlled by satanic power. They're weeping and worshiping at the image of fertility and all that it symbolized. And they were, by their very actions, becoming conduits of expression for satanic power to manifest itself, ultimately trying to cause his seed to come forth into the earth. What they didn't realize they were actually doing and what they were giving a, 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 an impetus to and energizing was they were, in essence, causing the foreshadow of Antichrist to draw nearer and closer to Jerusalem. Found in the, in the demonically possessed form of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. An Antichrist was coming. It just was way ahead of time, so to speak. A foreshadow of the Antichrist was coming. And they were being used symbolically as the women. Remember, they are the fertility. They're the fertile ones. Women symbolize the bringing forth of the child. And this is why it was so egregious what they were doing. I have a, <laughs> it makes me weep in, in sadness over it because of it because they 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 are trying to give birth to a demonic power to the very son of the devil himself and they don't even understand it they're so overtaken in the house of god at this point 
that like we said, they had become catalysts for the dark forces of satanic will to be expressed in the very house of God, the ultimate goal, the capturing of the Shekinah glory of God in the Holy of Holies. I don't know if you can understand that, but that's what it is. And, <laughs> and so they're calling for that spirit. Why are you saying all this, Brother Marty? Because that's what they're doing now. Every Even Black Lives Matter, and I don't mean to get anybody mad, the, the, the three founding members of it are women. All of them deeply steeped into the occult and Marxism. All of them, if you've heard the, the recent uh, the interviews of them uh, and the conversations they've had that were recently released, they were talking about their occult practices and how they call upon the spirits of the dead to energize what they're actually doing right now in this country, burning down streets and looting businesses and people being killed in the streets. That's what these people are doing. It's an ancient spirit, and they're being used of the enemy right now. And in essence, whether they realize it or not, this occult feminism that's taking place, <laughs> it's calling upon and, and giving giving energy to the coming forth of that, that wicked one that is yet to be. He's not too far away from us now. Any thoughts? Powerful. Man. Um, I was uh, thinking about your uh, what you were saying, Brother Marty, how this has its origins in uh, the days of Nimrod. Yes. And the, the, these ancient people were, were far, for lack of a better word, brighter than what we think. You know, we've been taught that they were just... Tri Say that again? Far, yeah, far more advanced. Amen. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. They, they weren't trying to climb to heaven by a ladder. That's you know, that, that wasn't just their objective, to, to be, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> That's how we've been yeah. taught. But mm -hmm. but the Tower of Babel, in essence, was a sort of temple, to be more specific, an yeah. uh, astrological temple, right? <laughs> they but. were trying to access, right? They were trying to access uh, uh, these, you know, uh, it was demonic what they were doing. Right, Absolutely. it wasn't just something we're trying to reach God, let's build a tower. No, they they were after something, you know. And we know Nimrod. I think his father was Cush, right? And Ham was yeah. the father of of right. Cush. And 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 so Ham uh, took, I believe, from what he saw on the other side of of uh, of the flood, and what he learned from these fallen angels, right? And, and yes. in many ways taught them to his children and his children to his children. But uh, but this is, you know, just, just powerful, man. I'm just like in awe, just listening to uh, the depthness of what we're hearing today. And um, yes. that's what I was thinking about, brother, as, as you were Praise speaking. God, no. No, that's, that's precisely correct. And it's important to note. You know, one of my favorite authors, his name is Graham Hancock. He's, he's a scholar, an archaeologist. He writes books that are like 700 pages long, right? But one of the things that he said uh, that always struck with me, I read some of his books when I was in my early 20s. He, I don't know if he's saved. He's not saved. I know if he was saved. But he's, but he's an excellent scholar. One of the things he believed in his, in his hypothesis, in his thesis, was that we were, in, we were a species, as he says, humanity, that is, uh, with amnesia, 
that we literally have forgotten, <laughs> right? So it made me think of that when you said, look, when we go all the way back to the Tower of Babel, uh, post-flood, after the days of Noah, we are, we are, we are seeing a people that, that, <laughs> that uh, you know, that were far more advanced in this type of learning that we're talking about uh, mm-hmm. than we are. You know, and, and we, we view them as people who, you know, again, we were talking earlier on at the beginning of the podcast, the masterful job of, 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 of the king of deceivers in that he's taken the truth of these things and distorted them so that they, they're laughed off as myth and legend. But the truth of the matter is, is that, is that these things happen and, and by diverting our, our thoughts about them, and, and and causing us to relegate them to, to made-up stories, he hides himself and yet reveals himself uh, all in plain sight. You know, you have to understand, if you look at it from that perspective, that these, uh, you know, which would evolve into Darwinian theory, right, that we were, you know, or some protoplasm that threw itself up on, on the sand uh, out of some primordial soup and you know, evolved into these monkeys that, you know, Cro-Magnum man grabbing our, you know, dragging our knuckles on the ground, all that stuff, man. That wasn't it at all. I mean, they were far more advanced than that. I mean, all you have to do is go look at the megalithic structures around the world, whether it be Chechen Itza or, or Machu Picchu in Peru or the, the all the way to the Egyptian pyramids. I mean, we can talk about these architectural wonders to this day, we're told by some of the leading engineers and architects in the world that we don't even have the equipment necessary to lift one of the blocks that were used at the Temple of Baalbek, for example, in Lebanon. You know, there's there's a hundred ton stone uh, that is used as the foundational stone upon which the Romans built their their temple to Apollo. But these ancient stones that were honed and and uh, and that were uh, crafted in such ways that even uh, even our diamond drills and and, and laser technology couldn't fashion and form these things. So yes, brother, obviously there is there is a lot of information that we have forgotten, and societies uh, and cultures of that day that were far more advanced than we've ever understood, and especially in the realm of what we call the mysterious. And and this right. is what this is what we've seen uh, infiltrating the house of God at this time. Uh, I have. Go ahead, brother. Brother, I was also I was also thinking about as you were speaking about the woman and and really uh, it, it was more as you said it was more than just a, a weeping but it, it had a a lewd and idolatrous not just tone that's what they were doing it's the manner and they were that they were lamenting right the death yeah. of of Moose but it reminded me of of, of an act too and and just real quickly in the book of Numbers brother when when the when remember when uh, Israel was abiding in Shittim, and they began mm-hmm. to commit whoredoms with the daughters of Moab, right? And, right. And, and and that led to sacrifices of their gods and uh, and, and to the worship of ba- Baal Peor. Is that how you say it? Baal Peor? Peor? Yes. Yes. And the Bible and the Bible said that the anger of the Lord was kindled. And what what strikes me in this story, you know, is that Moses you know, was angered, right, and, and takes all the, the heads of the people, hangs them before the Lord against the sun. And, and the Bible says that the fierce anger of the Lord, so that he could turn the fierce anger of the Lord away from them. But there was a lewd act 
committed with an Israelite in this and one of these um Midianish women, right? Who who Cosby. began to perform what's that? Yeah. Her name was Cosby. Yes, yes, Cosby. <laughs> uh-huh. And they began to to do this in the sight of all the people and in the sight of Moses. You know, had yeah. it not been for for a man by Phineas who got it right, the Bible says that that um he, when he saw it he arose among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of yeah. Israel and the woman through her belly so that the plague was stayed. But what 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 this last verse that I want to connect here is Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, had turned my wrath away from the children of Israel while he was zealous for my sake among them that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Amen. So we, we, we see here uh, kind of a picture of what was taking place uh, in that, you know, what God is showing us in Ezekiel of these lewd acts and idolatrous women who were not just shedding some tears. It, it was something, <laughs> I don't know another word to use, but lewd, very, um, you know, uh, evil. Very evil. They were yeah. Inside the temple. Were you going to yeah. say something, Brother Fernando? No, no, not at all. Okay. Well, when they were weeping as well, and, and really, Brother Jeremy, it's good that you brought that up because that segues into uh, now as we're leaving the women here uh, into what he saw next because it is connected. But what what the men were doing was in connection with with what you were just mentioning with Baal Peor, the most ancient, the oldest of all gods. And and listen to this, uh, and we'll talk about it in a second. But but when the women are weeping, it is an, it is such a blasphemous act. Because remember, um, King David uh, had written uh, a prophecy in in his psalms where he says uh they uh weeping remember weeping may endure for a night right yes. but joy comes in the morning or something like but joy comes in the morning now right. that was the prophecy of david of, of 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 christ himself who would die and that it would produce weeping in the long night between calvary and the resurrection in the morning Right? It was prophesying of the joy that would come in the morning. Why? Because because a resurrection indeed would take place. <laughs> but it wasn't Tammuz, man. So right? It wasn't the devil. It was Jesus Christ himself, the son of the living God. We see that fulfilled in Mary, right, at the tomb. It says that she was weeping. She couldn't even see through her tears. And, and, he, and he says, Mary. And, and, and then she realizes it's the Lord. She calls him Rabboni. Her tears are turned into joy you know they that go forth weeping shall uh bearing what precious seed uh Mm. shall doubtless come rejoicing right with sheaves in their hand i think that's how it goes so the very act of the weeping of the women for tammuz was a mockery of the prophetic utterances of the prophets that predicted that the son of god himself would come die be buried suffer a night a long night of three days and three nights, and then resurrect in the morning. It was as if he was trying to 
circumvent those prophecies and cause his own son, if you will, the son of perdition, to to come into being. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so here we are. It brings us to the man. And we've been going now for an hour and 15, 20 minutes. I don't even know if we should get into this. But it, it, it goes to another level here, brothers, that 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 go all the way into the into the very throne room of God. And uh I think we should stop here. Uh because it's I know it's probably too much for the people at this point. <laughs> you might be out there going, No, 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 and then we'll go on for another hour. But listen, uh I, I wanna deal I wanna deal with this fourth vision and give it the, the time that that it's it, it it's need it needs. There is again what we're talking about here is notice where they are in verse sixteen. It says he brought me to the inner court of the Lord's house and behold at the door of the temple. This is where it had reached. The wow. devil was after the devil was after God's glory. The devil was after the Shekinah glory. That's what he was attempting take now how what all that means and how all that would work and all that, i don't know i just know he was getting close to it and and for some reason that i don't have the the proper vocabulary to describe these acts of blasphemy are energizing this kind of overtaking of the temple of god in jerusalem but understand this Ultimately, what we are talking about is the same thing being repeated in our time, only not in type and shadow anymore, or in attempted efforts of the devil, but it's actually going to be realized. All of it. All of it. And just as God came and took his glory away with all the armies of heaven, Jesus is coming to take away his glory again. You see, the women cried for Tammuz, but the Bible concludes with this. Would you read this to us, Brother Jeremy, in Revelation chapter 22? Could you read that to us in verse 17? Actually, read verse 16, 16 and then 17. It says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that hear it say, Come, and let him that is athirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. There's the water, <laughs> and there's the crying, right? And what's being cried here? Is the, is the true church and the Holy Spirit within her is crying for the return of the Lord. Even so, return quickly, Lord, is what they're crying. And and everlasting life will be given to his people. Yes, the days are dark and, and crazy things are happening. But what we are witnessing right now are the last days, not only of, of a great, once great godly nation, but the last remaining obstacle uh before it's destroyed, uh, that that will be removed in order for uh, for the for the Nebuchadnezzar of our era to come forth, and the solidification of a global empire 
to be realized, as has been prophesied by the prophet since since the days of the garden. Really, we are we are coming to that place, and and there is uh, not too many days ahead of us, whether it be you know <laughs> several months or several years. Uh, it's it's closer now than when we first believed, and 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 the evidence of it is all around us. What we are seeing and what we are witnessing right before our eyes has yet to be fully understood and appreciated by the church as a whole. Uh, but God has His people. God has those that He has removed uh, from and detached from that whole system of compromise. And I'm talking about the spiritual system and the spiritual compromise. He has strategically allowed us to be removed from the scene. He has placed his people in places of protection. And he is revealing to us what's actually happening. What is the hardest thing for people to understand is that they need to understand what is exactly taking place because the ends of time have come upon us. And I know that sounds like conspiracy or or, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff that we could label it like it's been labeled through the years, you know. But brothers and sisters, if you believe what the scriptures tell us, then there is a generation that will witness the return of the Lord. And in my 60 years being upon this planet, and, and I've been studying Bible prophecy since I was 14 years old, I have never, in all those times, ever, and studying history, ever seen a time that more closely aligns with what the scriptures are saying and have revealed to us all these years. The hardest thing for God's people at this point, and one of the things, the hardest thing that it will be for them to do is to wrap their head around that truth and to truly embrace the idea. And not just by some, you know, worked up imagined thing, but our basis, our foundational uh, truths that 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 cause us to have the thesis that we have. It's not by something that we think or feel. We're quoting the Bible to you. We have been. We're now into our 127th, I think, or 28th program. Think of that. <laughs> 120 plus programs. 100, almost 130 programs we've been doing on this. And we've taken you through the Bible. And as we close out on this Friday, the question is, do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear what the Spirit is actually saying to the churches? Not based on a whim or a dream or a feeling or an impression, but line upon line, precept upon precept, with our most earnest and humble desire. To hear from God, truly, never to put ourselves out there as anything other than what we all are, if we're saved, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so we leave you this weekend with these thoughts. As news broke this morning of the President of the United States uh, being diagnosed with, with, with the coronavirus, the invincible man himself, uh, they, they say he's starting to show signs and symptoms. I wonder... It was just two days ago that, his, that that Jill Biden was having lunch with the governor of Virginia and his wife, and they were diagnosed with the coronavirus. She spent all this time with them, and 
you know, uh, it's ironic, but she's not sick, but the president and his wife are, precisely at the time when they need to be the most public. They're now being forced into obscurity for 14 days minimum. God forbid that anything happens to the man. I wish nothing to happen to anybody. I'm just saying, do you have eyes to see? Can you understand what's actually happening around us? Do you understand the level of the malevolence and the evil that's flowing across this world? Or are you just enamored with your Disney Channel and your and your Amazon shopping? I don't know, man. Or complaining because your Wi-Fi isn't coming in good enough. God, help us. This is not going to end. This is going to get really, really crazy, like like a level five rapids on the Colorado River, man. This is where we're headed. And the spirit that is broken forth all over the world, you will not be able to resist. In whatever form it will come and take its position in your life, it's coming to the very threshold of your door. And if you're not pressing in with Christ, if you're not on your face crying out for mercy, if you're not searching your heart and asking him to help you overcome every single thing that you need to overcome, well, you better get to it. Because the Lord said iniquity would abound and the love of many would wax cold. Mm-hmm. And that is where we are. That is what has come to rest in our doorstep. I want to read you something, and I encourage you as we close to go to uh, to LifeSite News. LifeSiteNews.com, and and two days ago, we've talked to you about him before, an extensive interview was done with with uh, one of the most powerful men in the world as it, as it approaches, as it relates to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, to, to religion, and that's Cardinal uh, Vigano, and he, he uh, just was recently interviewed, now we'll dig into this more on Monday, but I want to read you something about what he said uh, in answer to a question. It's an incredible interview that he gives. The title of it uh, that they used was Vigano uh, quoting. He says, uh, "Biden, a Biden win, and we're not preaching politics, we're just talking about the spirit of it, uh, would create a new ally for an apocalyptic dictatorship of the new world order. <laughs> That's what he says. Now listen to this. And and I think this 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 resonates with with anyone who cares to hear what he's saying. This man, he says, uh, it appears today that the Holy See, speaking of the Church, is being assaulted by enemy forces. I speak as a bishop and a successor in the long line of, of apostles, as he sees himself. He says the silence of the shepherds is deafening and upsetting. Some of the bishops are even preferring to support the New World Order, aligning themselves with the positions of Bergoglio, that's that's Pope Francis, and Cardinal Peroline, listen to this, who, who, as a frequenter of the Bilderberg Club, has slavishly submitted to its dictates, like so many politicians, as well as the mainstream media. He goes on to say, Split within the American Episcopate is the result of an ideological action that has been being carried out since the 1960s. 
especially within our major Christian and Catholic universities, specifically by the Jesuits in particular, in the formation of entire generations of young people, progressive indoctrination on the political front, and modernist indoctrination on the religious front. They have created an ideological support uh, for 1968, which began with the Second Vatican Council. As Benedict XVI confirmed in his essays, Principles of Catholic and Christian Theology, listen to this, adherence to an anarchic and utopian Marxism was supported on the front lines by many of the chaplains and teachers of our universities and different youth organizations who saw the blossoming of a new Christianity in those days. The dominant fact is found in the events of May 1968, where there were Dominicans and Jesuits at the barricades. The intercommunion that was held there during an ecumenical mass in support of the barricades was considered a kind of milestone in the evolution of salvation's history, a sort of revelation that inaugurated a new and compromised era for Christianity. This split in the United States, which today has become even more obvious as the presidential elections approaches, is so widespread in, in Europe and Italy. The highest levels of the church have desired to make a radical and, in my opinion, unfortunate choice. Listen, preferring to follow the mainstream thought of environmentalism, immigration policy change, and the LGBT ideology, rather than courageously standing up against them and faithfully proclaiming the uh, salvific truth announced by our Lord Jesus Christ in his gospel. This choice took a great leap forward beginning in the year 2013 with the election of Jorge Mario Bergoglio. We know him as Pope Francis. But it goes back to at least almost 60 years ago it is significant that even then the Jesuits and all of the Catholic intelligentsia of the left, even then they looked to Mao's China as the privileged interlocutor, almost driving force behind the alleged social renewal, just as today. And the Catholic Church is looking towards Xi Jinping, that's the president of China. The Jesuits who supported the guerrillas in Latin America and who were on the French barricades in May of 68 today use social media to make similar claims, always with their eyes toward Beijing while carrying the same hatred toward America. And I'm going to close with this. It is true that division is the work of the devil. However, Satan sows division between man and his creator, between the soul and grace. The Lord, however, does not divide, but he separates. He creates, just powerful what he says here. He says he creates a boundary between the city of God and the city of Satan, between those who serve the Lord and those who fight against him. He himself will separate the just from the wicked on the soon approaching day of judgment. 
after having placed himself as the stumbling stone. He will separate light from darkness, good from evil. And according to the teaching of the Lord, it is necessary if we want to follow Christ and renounce Satan. But it's also necessary to separate when we choose who best protects the rights of the faith of the gospel of Jesus Christ from those who nominally proclaim themselves to be Christian, while in fact promoting laws that are clearly opposed to both divine and natural law. Just as the shepherd who warns the flock about the attacks of the wolves is also divisive, accusing Donald Trump of not being Christian solely because of the fact that he wants to protect your national borders evoking the specter of sovereignism as a disaster while human trafficking is allowed, remaining silent in the face of persecution of Christians in China and elsewhere, or silent before thousands of profanations of churches that have been happening for months all over the world. Is not all of this divisive? I close with this. Father James Martin, Jesuit, in the is the standard bearer of the LGBT ideology. And despite this, indeed because of this, he was appointed by Pope Francis as the consultor uh, of the Holy See or the Holy Church's communication. His work, which is truly divisive in the worst sense of the term, serves to strengthen a fifth column of the progressive agenda within the ecclesial body, so as to create an ideological and doctrinal split within the church and to make people believe that the demands of progressivism, including the so-called homo heresy, come from the ground up. In reality, we know well that the faithful are much less inclined to innovations than public opinion is led to believe, and that the desire to show that there is a supposed will of the people in order to legitimize choices incompatible with the perennial teachings of Jesus Christ and his church is a ploy which has been used both at the ecclesial level as well as the civic level. These are the days we find ourselves in. These are the days that every one of us need to look within ourselves and ask the Lord where we truly are. We love you and we're praying for you. Pray for us as we seek to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brother Jeremy? My mind, that was powerful. And I think that was a tremendous ending. And I think we should have ended there with what you just read. We must, in this hour, look within ourselves. Look within ourselves and examine. I know it's been a, uh, it's been heavy today but it's necessary. There's no other way we're going to be able to understand the Word of God with uh, your normal, you know, three points and, you know, uh, commentary uh, on these things. No, it, it, God is revealing much deeper things and urgent things in this hour. So we want to encourage you, as Brother Marty said, we, we, as we pray for you that you pray for us. As we go on the weekend, we don't know what could happen. Lord willing, we'll be here on Monday. And uh, if the Lord allows us to continue to study these things. May God bless you. May God keep you. And as always, keep looking up.